The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so excited uh, for that announcement and for the, how the Lord has led our process. Uh, continue to pray for the team, for our church in this season. For those of you who may be new to Story City, uh, welcome via live stream. Uh, like Matt said, my name is Tyler, and I pastor here in Granada Hills. Let me, let me pray for us as we jump into God's Word this morning. Father, as we come to your word and read the account of how your church, the church, the church of which we are a part right now in this moment was birthed through the bold proclamation of your gospel, would you stir up within us faith and remembrance and trust in your gospel of Jesus Christ crucified for sinners? We are gospel runaways. We are prone to forget. We we need you for this. So Jesus, remind us of your gospel as your church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. My family moved to Modesto, California, which is about four and a half hours north of here, from Denver, Colorado, when I was 10 years old in 1993. Um, At that time, my family was not a church-going family. We we, church for me was maybe Easter and Christmas. My first memories of church at all uh, at that age were playing the little drummer boy. Uh, in the church Christmas pageant, which is ironic because I'm a terrible drummer. And, uh, and also, I remember one night specifically, my first remembrance of anything Christian or Christ-centered in my life was when a pastor from a local church we randomly went to from time to time came and met with my parents in the backyard of our home, and he handed my—I was there with my parents. He had come to meet with my parents, but he handed me and specifically brought me this gold hardback Bible that said Good News Bible on the front of it. And I immediately took that Bible up. I don't know why, but I took it up into my room and I started reading. And I remember opening, I just opened it up to Genesis and read, In the beginning God created. And I went all the way through and it had little animated pictures of Adam and Eve. And, uh, and that was my first experience. And I don't know why that memory is so vivid other than to say that that was God's first step in his pursuit of me. But we moved for my dad's work in 93 to, to Modesto, California, still lost, still not knowing Jesus. And were quickly invited to church by neighbors two houses down. And their names were Mildred and Elwyn Johnson. Great names. Mildred and Elwyn Johnson. And they invited us. And we went. I don't know why, but my family decided to go. And little did we know, this was going to be our first mega church experience by our standards. Uh, I remember walking into this church, 1,500 people seated, uh, lights and great sound, and just looking at my family as a 10-year-old kid going, what is this? This is crazy. My dad and mom looking back at me going, I don't know, son. This is, this is not like any church we've ever experienced. That Christmas, still lost, my dad and I and my family went to a, a, a big thing called Come Celebrate Christmas that the church put on. It was great pageantry, orchestra, full band, and the stage was lined with banners that all had different attributes and names of God on them. And I remember as this kid with no knowledge of God or Jesus or the gospel, looking at these banners and reading them and not understanding what most of them meant, but there was one banner that really stood out. It was this banner that had a picture of a lamb on it, and it just said simply, the Lamb of God. And I remember sitting there at 10 years old looking at that banner going, what in the world does that mean? The Lamb of God? God has a lamb? What is he, a shepherd, a farmer? I don't understand. What use does God have for a lamb? And I just remember looking at my dad, 42 years old at the time, and saying, Dad, what does that banner mean, the Lamb of God? 
my dad looked back at me, and I can remember he stared at it for a few seconds, and almost there was like a little tinge of shame in his eyes, but he just looked back at me and said, I have no idea. I don't know what that banner means. And we got on with our night, we listened to the music, but a matter of weeks later, that banner and its significance, the, this concept of the Lamb of God would start to become clearer in the spiritual eyes of my family. See, my dad sat weeks later in that auditorium as a 42-year-old man with a history, lifelong atheist who had walked away from God and the drug addiction in his teenage years, who had recently sobered up and started getting his life together. And the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners intersected with my dad's soul, cut him to the heart, and my father placed his trust in that lamb of God who he had not understood for his salvation. And that filtered down into my whole family. My mother soon after came to Christ. Me and my brother through Sunday school and, and, and shortly thereafter would come to Christ. My whole family's now in ministry. My brother's a worship pastor. My dad has been in ministry for 24 years. The Holy Spirit through the gospel intersected my family. We stood weeks earlier staring up at that banner with no idea what it meant. Clueless. Not realizing that in that moment, and the reason that memory is still so sharp, crystal clear in my mind of all the instances in my life, not realizing that in that moment, that Lamb of God on that banner was in lion form, pursuing the souls of my family. He was going to intercept us through his gospel with grace and mercy and forgiveness, give us an eternal purpose, set our eyes on something different, and radically transform the rest of our lives. See, somewhere between our blank-faced stare at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood atoned for my sin and my dad's sin and the sins of the world, and that moment of salvation that came to my family, here's what happened. Somebody, probably several people, faithfully and simply proclaimed the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, and the Holy Spirit eventually allowed us not just to hear it with our ears, but with our hearts. And we placed our faith in Jesus. We repented. We were baptized. We received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I thank God for the men and women along the way who boldly stood and preached Jesus to my family, simply and clearly and powerfully. We were saved by the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. And what we see in Acts is what happened in my family happening as a pattern in the lives and hearts of thousands of men and women in Jerusalem and a church being birthed, a church being born through the proclaiming of the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners. And both sides of that statement are implicit in the gospel. Christ crucified. That's God's part in the gospel. Christ was crucified for us. He gave his perfect life on the cross so that we could come to him by faith through the grace that he freely gives and be saved from a purposeless, meaningless life seeking fleeting pleasures into a glorious mission with him and an eternity fixed in heaven. That's God's part in the gospel. He's the initiator. He's the activator. He's the source. He gives the fruit. Our part in the gospel? For sinners. Christ crucified for sinners. There we are. There I am. What's my role in the gospel? I contribute only the sin that made Christ's sacrifice necessary. 
That's my role in the gospel. My sin is great this morning, but my Savior is greater. And if you're in Christ, that's true of you too. See, this is what we gather for as a church. We are not gathered this morning. I promise I'm going to get to the text soon. We are not gathered this morning for a self-help seminar. We aren't gathered to get our to-do list in order. You don't need a drive-by guilting of being told how bad you are and how to get better, and you don't need to be told you're a special, unique snowflake with a great purpose in the world apart from the gospel. What we gather for in the church is the gospel. Whether we gather online because we must, or we gather on a lawn, or we gather in church as we all long to be together, all of that is secondary to this. However we're gathered, wherever we're gathered, we do so to proclaim the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, the only hope this world will ever know. And as we see in Acts 4 today, and we're going to see as we continue to walk through the book, the gospel of Christ crucified and resurrected from the grave in glory is a pattern throughout the book of Acts. The pattern is this. The gospel is proclaimed simply and boldly, modeled in acts of love, and the church grows. And then opposition comes, and the gospel goes forward through that opposition. It's the pattern. It's what we're going to see. As a quick review to get us to Acts chapter 4, I'm going to cover a lot of ground here. Acts chapter 2, the church is born at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls. Peter boldly proclaims the gospel. Here's a sample of that. Verse, chapter 2, verse 23. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Peter speaks to this crowd at Pentecost. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter is bold. Peter is clear. Peter is simple. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he speaks. And we read in chapter 2, verse 37, that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? How do we respond to this gospel? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of your sins. What does coming to faith in Christ look like? It looks like being cut to the heart, first and foremost, and we can't skip this part, by the reality and weight of your sin against the holy God. But then, immediately healed through and through to the uttermost by the free gift of salvation through the life, death, and sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross. And then, once the Holy Spirit has illumined those realities, responding by faith and responding in repentance, being baptized. And we read here that that day, 3,000 were added to their number. What number is that? What number is that? 3,000 were added to what number? To the church. The church is born. There's a number. There's, they know who they are. They know what the church is and who's in the church. There's 3,000 of them at this point. And hear me, I want us to feel this link. Because that church of 3,000 was birthed 2,000 years ago, we stand here today in Granada Hills. You stand in your living room or wherever you're listening to this as a part of that same church. What happened there caused what's happening today. This was the birth of the church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, L.A. included. 
In Acts chapter 3, as Matt unfolded yesterday, Peter and John healed the first miracle, a 40-year-old man who was lame from birth. And we read of how a great crowd was astonished and amazed as they saw this man who they've seen and walked past thousands of times, 40 years old, lame from birth, is healed. And we read that they follow and rush after Peter and John in amazement into Solomon's colonnade, which is a covered area inside the Jewish temple, the established Roman, uh, the established Jewish place of worship. They run in, following Peter and John. And we read in Acts chapter 3, verse 11. I don't want us to miss this, because this has implications for the rest of the sermon today. Acts 3:11. While the man held on to Peter and John, this man who is just healed by the power of Jesus Christ, which filled Peter and John. I just picture him wrapped around the leg, hanging on Peter with joy and thankfulness in his heart, weeping for what has just happened, dancing, amazed that his legs work after 40 years of being lame. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in Solomon's colonnade. And here we read, that no surprises, Peter seizes this opportunity with this great crowd to do what? To proclaim the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, resurrected from the grave. But this time, unlike at Pentecost, the miraculous sign, the, the amazing thing that's giving power and proof to his words is the visible manifestation of the power of God hanging around his leg in the man who was just healed. It's a testimony of the reality and power of Christ crucified for sinners to those who are seeking and to those who would oppose it. The healed man is a picture of Jesus. Church, here's a first principle for us this morning. The gospel moves in power when the church marries the bold proclamation of God's word to acts of mercy done in love. Our gospel manifests itself and proves itself and is made unsilenceable, unmutable through acts of love done in mercy. The two have to walk hand in hand, and they will in any vibrant, spirit-filled church. And we read that the number of those who believed the church continued to go greatly in response to Peter's second sermon. Chapter 4, verse 4. Many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000 men. So the church has grown from 3,000 to 5,000. That's fast growth. That's multiplication. That's exponential. That's spirit growth. But in chapter 4 of Acts, as we continue, we're going to continue to see, and we just saw the exponential growth of the church taking root, but we're also about to see the first opposition to the gospel, the first persecution of the church. See, the church is only weeks old at this point. It's weeks old. These, these are infants in their faith with the apostles leading the way. And already persecution comes. Opposition to the gospel comes. Persecution has been normative for the church since the beginning. The lack of persecution is an, is an exception Persecution is the norm in, throughout church history. Chapter 4, verse 1 through 3. The priests and the captains of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. So they didn't wait for him to be done. 
They're going to interrupt. They're going to run in. Priests, the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, interrupt Peter and John. They were greatly disturbed, greatly disturbed, because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail. They put them in jail until the next day. To give us a, a clear picture of what's just happened, I want to help. Who were these men? The priests, the captain of the temple guard, what's that? The, the Sadducees, who were they? Well, the Jewish priests, there were 24 of them. They served two weeks at a time in rotation, and they oversaw all the teaching and sacrifices of the temple. So they were the schooled religious men of the day. And they didn't like that Peter and John were teaching, and they certainly didn't like that they were proclaiming the Christ that they had just crucified, and they certainly, certainly did not like that thousands of people were clamoring and listening and coming to faith. The captain of the temple guard here, picture uh, the Jewish-employed head security guard of the temple. Uh, Rome was an occupation of this territory, and Rome liked order. And so the Jewish people had security guards at the temple to maintain order. So what was this guy upset about? He did not like the disorder because it was going to get the Romans involved. And that doesn't go well for them. And then the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect, a minority religious sect, but they oversaw all temple worship at this time. And here's what's unique about the Sadducees. They only believed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were the divinely inspired word of God. And there's nothing in the Pentateuch about the resurrection, so they denied the resurrection. They completely and fully denied any reality of a bodily resurrection. So Christ's resurrection was a great threat to their power and their teaching. And we read that all three of these groups were greatly disturbed. That's strong language in the Greek. The only other time that word, greatly disturbed, which is translated from the Greek, is used is in Acts 16, 18, where Paul encounters a demon-possessed little girl who keeps screaming out behind them, following him for days, saying, these men are servants of the Most High God, come to bring you salvation. And Paul gets is so annoyed by it that he turns around, tells her to be quiet, and cast the demon out, because he was greatly annoyed. These Jewish authorities are annoyed. They are bothered. They are incensed by what these apostles dare to do in their temple. This was a moment of reckoning for them. This new little movement called Christianity, full of Christ followers, it's not so little anymore, and it's on their doorstep. It's, on their, it's in their living room, and it's moving in power. People are being healed in its name. Thousands are coming to faith. This is a huge threat to their establishment of power, and they respond how? By, put, by putting Peter and John in prison because they don't know how else to silence them. Second principle this morning. When the gospel is proclaimed, it brings salvation and it encounters opposition. When the gospel is proclaimed, it brings salvation and it encounters opposition. Both should be expected in the life of a Christian and in the life of a church. Quickly, two reasons the gospel encounters opposition. The first reason the gospel encounters opposition when it is faithful, faithfully proclaimed is that the gospel is full of implicit and explicit truth claims. It's full of truth claims, claims to absolute authority, and those truth claims contradict 
and they expose a world that opposes them. What are some of those truth claims? There is a God would be an absolute truth claim that many in our world deny. Even those who are on the same page with us on the reality of a God, a creator, might disagree with us on this, the gospel implicit claim that Jesus is that God, that he stands above all other gods, that all other gods are not gods at all, that Jesus is the exclusive way to be saved, that sin is real and must be dealt with and has consequences, that we must repent, that we do not belong to ourselves but to God, and that's the biggest one, I think. See, if God is real, if the gospel is true, I'm not my own. I don't hold the keys to my life anymore. There's an authority above me. All of these things are explicit truth claims that the world hates. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It doesn't give a middle ground. When the gospel hits your ears, it's either foolishness or it's the very power of God. The second reason I'll give that the gospel encounters opposition is the reason behind the reasons. It's that Satan hates the gospel. It's that Satan hates the gospel. Why? Because as Romans 1.16 would tell us, it's the power of God for salvation to all who would believe in it. Where the gospel is proclaimed, not only should we expect opposition, but we should have our wits about us to recognize that the opposition behind the opposition is a spiritual opposition. There is an enemy who hates the message of the cross, and he wages war daily to silence it. Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Schemes are subtle. They aren't overt. They're poison concealed in a beautiful, attractive cocktail. The devil schemes against the gospel subtly. Think on that this morning with me in our moment in time. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Church, Satan schemes to silence the gospel. He hates it. Did you know that Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, mighty Paul, wrestled with the temptation to soften his gospel? That he wrestled with the temptation, that he fought spiritual warfare against the temptation to soften and silence his gospel? Where am I getting that from? I'm getting it six verses after Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, right after he speaks and gives his great treatise on spiritual warfare and how to wage it. Ephesians 6, 19 through 20. Pray for me also, he writes, that whenever I speak words may be given to me so that I will what? Fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Listen to this. Listen to Paul. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let me ask a question. Why does Paul need to ask for prayer? Why does Paul need to ask for prayer that he would proclaim the gospel fearlessly if he's not feeling temptation to not do so? 
If he's not fighting a war to soften, if he's not experiencing fear, there's comfort in this for us because you and I both know that it can be scary to share the gospel boldly. Paul wrestled with the same things. So this would be a good prayer for us this morning to pray for one another. The same prayer Paul needed, we need. Pray for me. I pray for you that we have the boldness to share the gospel plainly and fearlessly, as Paul says it, as we should. Satan schemes to silence the gospel. The gospel is full of implicit and explicit truth claims that contradict and expose those who oppose it. So the gospel encounters opposition. Verses five and six, chapter four. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. So this is a familial, this is the Sanhedrin. It's 71, 71 men, 71 of the most influential and powerful Jewish men in Jerusalem. And they've gathered together because they got to deal with Paul and John and figure out how to silence this gospel. Verse seven, they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. So they've had them in jail all night. They figured out how we're going to approach this. They've had their closed door meetings and here's how they lead. Peter and John stand before the 71 most influential men. By what power or what name did you do this? By what power or what name did you do this mighty act? Peter, John. (laughs) Uh, This question is a statement. (laughs) You want to know what the statement is? Uh, Peter, John, We have a little bit of curiosity about how you did this, but more than this, we're hung up on this fact. You don't have power or authority in this temple. We do. By what power or authority did you do this? That's their calculated attack. By what power? By what authority? Well, this is the perfect question. This is what, just what Peter and John wanted and were hoping to talk about. They would love to tell you by what power, by what authority they did this mighty act, this mighty sign. It's an open door for the gospel. This is an open door for Peter and John to proclaim to the most powerful men in the land the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what they see here. They see an opportunity for the gospel. See, Christians entrust themselves to God's purposes when they meet opposition, when they meet persecution. They entrust themselves to God's purposes in it. They know that he will open a door and is opening a door for the gospel to go forward. They trust his character in that. How else would Peter and John have had the opportunity to testify to Christ before the most powerful religious elites, religious elites in Jerusalem if they had not been opposed and persecuted? Here's a principle for us. In the face of persecution and in the face of of opposition, the early church burned not to defend their freedom, not to stand up for their rights, but to find an open door to proclaim Jesus. Their energy, their animus, their effort, their eyes, their mindset were not set on how are we gonna defend ourselves on the defensive, but on the offensive for the gospel. What is God going to do in this? What can God do through this? How can the gospel move forward? Church, is that our mindset? On the fa- in the face of opposition, is our energy focused on the gospel advancing? Is there a gospel gravity pulling our souls forward 
in boldness? Verse eight, this is great. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people. So just pause. Peter was full of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean that he was full of the Holy Spirit? The most simple way we can say this is to say that he was not full of himself, that he was emptied of his flesh, that the Holy Spirit had taken over. He was fully thrusting himself in weakness upon Christ, upon the gospel. He was mindful of God's reality and forgetful of the other realities of the men that surrounded him. He was weak enough in himself to be strong in the Lord. We need this in the face of opposition and persecution. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 and 10, if we are called, this is, Peter continues, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Again, the pattern emerges. The gospel proclaimed. The Holy Spirit fills Peter, and it, it gives, it marks, I think we can say his response here to them is marked by three things. First, it's a reasonable response. It's a reasonable response. He starts by saying rulers and elders. He puts them in their rightful place of authority. Peter begins by acknowledging their position. He's not here to attack them with ad hominems. He's not here to insult them, to gratify his flesh. He's here to testify to Christ. And so his speech is going to be seasoned with salt. The Holy Spirit makes him reasonable. But not only that, the Holy Spirit makes him shrewd, shrewd. It makes him wise. He's not rolling over. He's not playing dead. Where am I getting that? He says here, rulers, if we are being called to account today, what, for an act of kindness? We're being called to account for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame? Is that not a good thing we've done? This, this statement is a shrewd indictment on those who are indicting him. He's saying, look, what we've done here is good. It's unarguably good. It's manifestly good. It's hanging around my leg right now. This guy couldn't walk, and now he can walk. Why am I being called to give an account for this? It, it begs the question, is what you are doing in this little tribunal you've ordered good? He's shrewd. I wonder if Peter was thinking of this moment when he wrote 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It makes Peter reasonable. The Holy Spirit makes Peter shrewd. And lastly, the Holy Spirit makes Peter bold. It makes him courageous, him and John. He says here, Christ Jesus of Nazareth, that's the name we've done this in. There's no other place. There's no other authority. He's the one, and you crucified him. But the gospel is available to you too, Sanhedrin, 71 men. You can be saved. In this moment, if you will simply put your faith in him and turn from your sin, 
Church, it's hard to speak the gospel in general sometimes, and it can be extremely hard to speak it when you know the people you're speaking it to will oppose it. Especially if, like in this case, they can imprison or beat you or worse. Peter does it anyways. Full of the Holy Spirit. Reasonable. Shrewd. And bold. Begs the question, who in my life, who in your life, is hard to share the gospel with. Who is that person that you just think in your mind, oh, that would just be a bad day if God asked me to share the gospel with them. That'd be hard. That'd be uncomfortable. That would be, it might cost me a relationship. It's worth considering here that the gospel moves in power when it's proclaimed and it meets opposition. And our call is to faithfully steward it and proclaim it. Verse 11 and 12. Peter continues, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting and pointing back to Psalms 118, saying this is prophesied about. It's happening right now. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved at the risk of redundancy. Again, Peter is clear. He's simple. He's direct. Can I just be honest? Being clear and simple and direct with the gospel can feel hard, especially in the season we're in. I think think these are complicated times. I think that's safe to say. I think these are hard, difficult, nuanced, complex days with a lot of issues. I think it's hard to know what to say and when to say it and how to say it sometimes. But friends... The gospel hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't changed. The gospel hasn't moved an inch. Not since Peter spoke it in our text today, 2,000 years ago, before the 71 most powerful men in Jerusalem. It hasn't changed. Has 2020 changed the gospel? Has 2020 relocated the importance and primacy of the gospel to bullet item 2C? Is the gospel not still our greatest need? Is the gospel not still our greatest hope? Is the gospel not still powerful, even in 2020? Is life not still short? Is death not still certain? Is eternity not still waiting for every soul? Does every heart not still long to know that death will not ultimately steal everything away from us in the end, every valued relationship and possession? Do we not still long to know that all we love and value won't end six feet under the ground in decomposed nothingness? Is it not still true that we either die in Christ with our sins forgiven and covered, saved by faith, bound for a glorious inheritance that can never fade, spoil, or perish? Or that we die apart from Christ in our sin? bound for a real eternal place called hell? And is Christ not still risen from the grave? Is it not still true that the world, the flesh, and the devil always conspire against us to numb us to spiritual realities, to bind our hope to the fleeting things and pleasures of this world that is passing away along with its desires? 
Church, is our great and true and ultimate enemy not still Satan himself who hates us, who wars tirelessly to distract us with anything? Just distract us with anything, any cause, any mission, any hobby, any interest, just as long as it distracts from the glory of Jesus Christ and does not attract us to his beauty. Church, is it not still true that Christ has called us to love? Is it not still true that Christ has called us to love? To sacrifice, to lay down our very lives, not for our friends, not just for our friends, not just for those who share our worldview or our politics, but to love, in Jesus' words, our enemies. Is the call of the gospel not still to bless those who curse us? To give to those who would take from us? To love those who would hate us? Is the mission of the church not still to bring the beautiful, healing reality of Christ crucified for sinners into our neighborhoods? Is the mission of the church not still to bring the beautiful, healing good news of Christ into our neighborhoods? where we live, not in the ether. Into our homes, to discuss it at our dinner tables, to value it together as his church with one another when we gather weekly, however we have to do it in this time. And is the call of the gospel not still to bring the message of Christ crucified for sinners to the world when we scatter? Should the gospel not still be the first and last word on our lips, even now, even in 2020? Is the gospel not still our only hope of healing, our only hope of renewal, our only hope of restoration? So rather than standing before you ranting against all that may be dividing us or sucking joy or life or mission from our church, I just want to lay these questions before you for your consideration and mine and ask you with me as we look at this picture of gospel boldness in Acts 4 to consider if what has been primary for 2,000 years of church history, the gospel of Christ crucified for sinners, is right now primary in your soul and mine. Primary in your speech. Primary in your affections. Primary in private, God help us. Primary in public. Friends, is Jesus not the only name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved, must be saved? 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul writes this, for what I received and passed on to you as what? As of first importance. First importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Praise God Almighty. It happened. Our faith is alive and active and well and we are saved. 
verse 13 and 14. When the Sanhedrin, these 71 men, saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, just like the crowd that saw him heal. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Oh, Lord, let the world say the same of us. Take note of the same in us. And they they didn't like seeing it. They wanted to silence it. They were there to shut it up. And then we read this. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. See, Peter and John stood there that day and their gospel speech, their speech, their gospel speech did not stand alone. Its fruit was present with it, wrapped around their legs in tear-filled gratitude for the gospel's healing power. And the Sanhedrin had nothing to say to it. The gospel of too many churches is a words-only gospel. The gospel of too many churches speaks with no one wrapped around its leg healed by the gospel and gratitude as a testimony of its goodness and power to those who would seek to silence it. May the gospel of Story City Church be a gospel not only with a bold and pure mouth, but with dirty hands and feet from serving those who need it the most in love. God help us with that. Because when the world sees a church, (laughs) when the world sees that church, when the world sees a church that treasures the gospel so fiercely and deeply that they not only proclaim it boldly, but they embody it with acts of mercy done in love that benefit the community, that benefit the poor, that benefit the weak, that benefit the the marginalized and those in need. When the world sees that church, they see a Jesus, they can't silence, they can't shut up, they can't deny, and they can't explain away. Oh God, make us that church. It's the church the city needs. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you given your life to him? Have you trusted in him for salvation? Have you repented? Have you heard the gospel simply, boldly proclaimed of Christ's death in your place, of his resurrection and glory, of the reality that you can be saved simply by placing your faith in him and being filled with the spirit? That's why we do all of this so that you can and will. I pray right now that the Spirit would move in your life and in your heart and bring salvation into your home the same way he brought it into mine in 1993. All you have to do to make that happen is place your trust in him. Believe upon him for salvation and you will be saved. Do it right now in your living room, in your home, wherever you are. If you don't know Jesus, Hell is real. Heaven is real. Too much is at stake. Entrust yourself to the living God who came to earth for us. And if you do that, I simply want to ask you this. Email us and let us know at prayer at storycitychurch.com. Prayer at storycitychurch.com. It's not the ideal way to handle this, but we're apart right now. 
helps and necessary means. Please do it. Just one email this week would light our staff up. We would celebrate with you. Prayer at storycitychurch.com. Pastor, I want to be saved. Walk with me. Help me put my faith in Jesus. I am thankful for this text, for the challenges in it. I'm thankful for Peter and John and the boldness with which they proclaimed the gospel. May we be that church. May we rest in the gospel. This week, I would love to just see social media lit up with gospel testimony in our church. Just lit up, flashing. I was, but God, and now. Filling Facebook. Filling Instagram. I would love to know and hear stories of our neighborhoods, of finally stepping across that invisible barrier between us and our neighbors, asking them to have dinner and sharing the gospel with them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ crucified for sinners. Thank you that church and preaching and worship and life are about him, his glory, his kingdom. Thank you that the gospel is still advancing and that it still saves. Father, make Story City that church that we read about in Acts, preaching the gospel boldly with dirty hands and dirty feet running towards those in need. Help us to marry together the bold proclamation of the gospel and good works done in love and mercy that flow from the gospel. Thank you for all this. We trust you, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.